You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the LA International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in LA since 1989. Well, how's everyone doing this morning? You're doing good? You guys fired up? Man, not only was the worship incredible, I mean, there's that moment, you know, when you're, you're trying to keep up with Lucas Perez's silky sweet tenor. And you realize you're shredding your throat. And you go, I have to preach. I, I need to go back to my, to my stable, steady John bass and just hold it there because otherwise I'm going to come up here and sound like I'm in fifth grade. Uh, right? But that was incredible. And if you got here early, we spent some time. We got to watch the World Cup final, which, ha- yeah, that was like a small contingent of people who actually care about soccer. They went, yay! Everyone else went, okay, what's going on? You know, the World Cup, this was by far probably the, one of the better ones that I've ever seen or ever experienced. There's so many upsets, so many of the, the big favorites got knocked off. It would be like watching the NBA Finals or the NBA Playoffs and Golden State, Houston, Cleveland, all getting knocked out like in the first round. Like it was incredible. You got to see some people really shine. But it's over now. Which means that now I have to wait in eager anticipation for my favorite sport to watch. Because I'm American. Football. So excited. So excited about football. And there is a principle, right? One of the things I love most about principle or about football is this principle, the any given Sunday principle. Does anyone know what that means? I actually want to take an answer. What does that mean? Over here. Anyone can win on any given day, right? The NFL is so exciting because you could see the best team lose to the worst team on any day. It could just happen. You just have someone's number and you punch their ticket and and they just lose. Like it just happens. And when I think about God, I think about this is a, a principle that's similar to God. God doesn't necessarily operate on the any given Sunday principle. But if you've been following with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been preaching this series called Ordinary Heroes. Right? Looking at, instead of the supernatural people like the Avengers or Superman, or looking at the ordinary men and women that God used to do extraordinary things. And I find this principle at work. Instead of any given Sunday, it's any given somebody. Right? That God can use anyone at any time for his plan to do something amazing. And so today we're going to be turning to the book of Judges, chapter 6. We're going to be looking at a man named Gideon and how he was with able to God, or he was able with God to save his people. And when I thought about Gideon, I thought about, okay, what kind of image? I looked up image search, Gideon, you know, what, what would he look like? And there were these old cartoons and sitting there and I'm reading the story over and over again. And you may or may not agree with my choice of illustration here, but when I thought of an ordinary, normal, run-of-the-mill man, I thought of Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec. Chris Pratt. Shoe shiner, wearing his apron, average guy. And so forever from now on, if you think of Andy Dwyer when you see or think of Gideon as you're reading your Bible, that would be because of me. You're welcome. Right, Gideon. The title of my lesson, God's man is the right man. And if you'll turn with me to Judges chapter 6, 
starting in verse 1. We're going to read a, a little bit of passage here as we get into it. Judges chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years He gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. It did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And skip ahead to verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. My first point this morning, Gideon was called. Right? You read this passage, and you understand, man, the situation was dire for Israel. They were living like uncivilized people in caves, in shelters, in huts. They didn't have fortified cities like everyone else did. Right? They were completely shamed by the nations around them, impoverished, destroying, having their crops destroyed, their animals destroyed. <coughs> you didn't want to blow your eardrums out right there. Right? The situation called for a great leader. And you would think this would be a time when God would raise up someone incredibly powerful, someone like a Churchill or someone like a Julius Caesar or an Alexander the Great, except spiritual. And like come through and like, OK, this is going to be awesome. But instead, he chooses this guy, Gideon, who by his own admission is a man that comes from the smallest tribe and he's the weakest in his family. And to make it even better, God finds him hiding in a, it wasn't like he was doing something epic. God found him hiding, trying to thresh wheat in like a hole in the ground so that he wouldn't be found out. You look at this and you go, this is not a recipe for success. Like by all accounts, this seems like it was a colossal mistake. But nonetheless, God called him into service. God said, I want you at a time that was uncomfortable, inconvenient, and when Gideon was really vulnerable. <coughs> Sorry about that. They said, you are going to save the nation. And you think, man, Gideon reacts accordingly. According to everything we just said. He looks at him and he goes, uh, you have the wrong guy. 
I am not, I am hiding here. This is not, you're looking for a much more muscular man. Like, where's the rock when you need him? Where's the action hero in every legitimately B-movie action movie who's ever existed? You need that guy, not me. Right? And he tries to get out of this. Little did he know that Gideon actually met the three requirements that what I consider to be the basic requirements in the Old Testament to be used by God. Number one, you have to have a clear view of yourself and what you're capable of without God, which was, oh, bro, thank you, which was, I can do nothing. Number two, you've got to have a burning desire in your heart about what's going wrong, right? Gideon said, man, if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us, right? He felt for his nation. He felt for the things that were going on in his people's hearts. And third, you've got to have an incredible desire to see God do great things, right? Gideon comes back and says, where are all the miracles that we were told about? He knew where he was without God. He wanted to see things better, and he wanted to see God do great things. The three basic requirements, right? God did not have the wrong guy. Gideon just had the wrong focus, right? Gideon got so hung up, because it is possible to get hung up on number one, seeing yourself without God. There's a, there's a humble, right way to see it, and then there's the self-deprecating, Eeyore, I'm no good for anything, I should just sit back here on a log and just watch life pass me by because I can't do anything. I'm just not fit for service. I, the bottom line to that is, I can't do this. How many of us have ever felt like, God, you've got the wrong guy? You've got the wrong woman. I, I can't do this. I mean, by a show of hands, legitimately, how many of us have felt that? There you go. Yeah, a lot. This is a common theme here. You know, for me, most recently, I've been feeling this in my parenting. You know, at, at every major stage of your life, whether it's your dating relationship, whether it's your marriage, whether it's having kids, or they know, whether it's having kids, right? Every one of these major kind of life changes results in bringing out a lot of things about you that you didn't know were there. You start dating somebody and you realize, man, I am super selfish. Like there are so many things that are coming out right now about everything that I want and so little about what this other person needs or what this other person wants, right? You get married. You go, wow, I am even more selfish than I thought I was. And I don't fight fairly, right? You get in these married fights where it's like, you take the first cheap shot. You're like, there's no, you're like, wait, first discipling time is, man, you got to learn how to fight fair. That, that was, there are rules to fighting when you're married. You didn't know that. There are rules. You don't cry. It's like the Geneva, you know, convention. There are certain things you just don't do when you're married. Right? When you have kids, it brings out even more. And I think for me, with Emily, you know, growing up where, where my parents were divorced, where, you know, grew up spending most of my time with my mom and visiting my dad and uh, my stepmom's kids, there were a lot of children kind of running around. And I saw a lot of these kids that were kind of in my family grow up undisciplined and, and kind of unparented. The parenting was like a very, like, hands-off, oh, they're kids, just let them do their thing, and, but to their detriment. 
Like the kids grew up and they were terrors. Like they had no respect. They had no, they had no respect for authority, no respect for their parents. No, re- Like they just did whatever they want. I mean, like to the point of like, I mean, it was like startling. And I grew up seeing this and going, and there was just a, I didn't know it, but it put this deep fear in my heart of having a child grow up to be like that. And I noticed this when, when with Emily, when she would start, you know, she's eight months old, so she still has no, she just figured out that when I leave the room, I didn't die. Like, legitimately, you leave the room and it's like, you cease to exist. And she just got to this place where she, you know, I come back in the room and it's like, oh, there you are. But, like, there would be things that I would see. She would cry or she would, you know, like, kick, kick out when I'm, like, trying to change her. Like, and it, it started poking at this fear. I, I need to parent this right now. I need to stop this right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, she would kind of look at me and, and I'd be trying to feed her. And, it, and I'd be like, Ugh! And it'd be like, everything in me was just like, I need to, you know, I, I need to do something. Like, it would start... And I started to see kind of in our marriage even where my wife is so much more gracious, so much more like I lean so hard towards this very strict disciplinarian out of fear. And I and my parenting tendency with without discipling, without like a lot of like God kind of helping me direct this is to parent out of fear, harshly, strictly which was the way that I was parented growing up. And I look at that, and I, that did a lot of damage to me like growing up. And I'm seeing this, and I'm going, wow, I don't know how not to do this, but I understand that if, I, if this becomes like my mode of parenting like forever, for years, like this is going to damage my relationship with my daughter. And there's such a huge part of me that, that Satan wants to play with where it's, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what I should be doing. And, a, and a, an overwhelming panic that comes over me. You know, church, I don't know where you're struggling this morning. Where you feel that overwhelming panic. Where you feel that overwhelming feeling of, I can't do this. Whether it's you're in an unhealthy relationship of some kind whether you're starting to study the Bible and really take your relationship with God seriously, you know, you're studying with with different men and women in your life, but it's getting to these uncomfortable places in your heart where you're going, whoa, 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 I don't know if I can do that. You're asking me to make sacrifices or you're asking me to choose God over brother A or boyfriend B or whatever it is. I don't know if I can do that. Maybe you're being asked to take on a role or responsibility that you've hid from for so long. And you're going, I can't do that. Or maybe even it's just repenting of sin that's been lingering in your heart for way too long now. That really God is finally exposing to the people around you that care about you. But the panic, the feeling is, I can't do this. We have got to keep pulling ourselves back to the Scriptures. There is something so powerful about knowing how God feels about you. Knowing that you were hand-selected by God. It was not a mistake that you became a disciple. It wasn't an accident. If you're studying the Bible, that it wasn't some random chance. You have been called by God. By hand. 
for this time and this place to be here and to have this relationship with Him. There is. There is something powerful about this. And I think, man, this was something that spoke to these deep places in Gideon's heart. Am I not sending you? Go in the strength you have. Mighty warrior, I will be with you. You have been chosen by me. I'm coming to you. I could go to anyone, but I came to you. And that is God's story with each and every one of us. God came to you for such a time. You have been chosen. You have been called by God. We cannot give in to this fear. We have to remember who we are to God. And we've got to keep pulling ourselves back regardless of how equipped we feel or don't feel. Point number two, Gideon was all in. In Judges chapter 6, in verse 25, the Bible reads, That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? This sacrilege. And when they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because of Gideon, or so because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbaal that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. All right, this is incredible. So Gideon is called by God, and he answers the call. He says, okay, let's do this. God, I'm with you. And so God says, the very first thing, okay, so this is what I need you to do. You know that altar that your dad has? I need you to go bust it up. You know, and, and I know, what? No, I, I know. I know that this is the God that your entire town worships. But yeah, I, I need you to go wreck that thing real quick here. And, and you need to kind of put your house in order. I don't know what Gideon must have been feeling in this moment, right? But God's first challenge to him to really test, are you all in with me, was to put him on one of the most dangerous battlefields that he could possibly be on. The one at his own house and with his own family. And I want to ask you guys, I want to actually take some answers. Why would God ask him to do this? What makes our homes and our families so challenging to take a stand with? 
Okay, they're the closest people to us. We care deeply about what they think. What was that? Yeah, God is jealous. What else? Okay, yeah, they're the people who shape the way we think. What else? Okay, we're afraid of their reactions. They know who you really are. That's a really good one there, Jay. What else? You got one more right here. They may refuse you. Yeah, I mean, when we think about our families, these are the people, right? Even Jesus said, a prophet gets no honor in his own hometown. Right? They know who we really are. They've seen us grow up. They know our ins and outs and our comings and goings. Right? They are the closest people to us. They're the people whose opinion affects us most deeply. What they think about us affects us most deeply. Yeah, this was legitimately a large task. You've got to think at some point Gideon said, dude, can I just go to war? Like, that'd probably be a little easier. Just let me go fight guys who I don't care about and uh, maybe die. Because I really don't want to go home and have to break down my dad's altar. Yeah, God challenges him to go home and to really take one of the hardest stands. To stand with his family. And I think this was not just about his own family so much as this was about his own personal righteousness. You see, a lot of times we can get very excited about doing big things for God. But we aren't very excited about the small things. We can go out and say, man, okay, teen camp is coming up. Let's get fired. Let's get all the camp counselors. I'm going to volunteer. This is going to be amazing. Right? ICMC is coming up. Okay, we're going to invite everyone who wants to come. Or it's harvest festival time. We're going to bring out the whole. We get so pumped up. But when it's like, okay, so, uh, so how are things going with you and uh, your wife? How are things going at home with your kids? Or how are things going with your roommates? Or with your grades? Or with, with the things in your life? At your house. How are those? Oh, I mean, those, those are good, you know. Take the hill. We're going over there. Okay. Yeah, we can neglect the little things in our personal life that say so much more about who we really are. Whether that's with our families, our households, right? God challenged Gideon to be all in. But it wasn't this all-in that we talk about so often about, bro, are you ready to go anywhere, do any? It was the all-in of, are you willing to go after the small things in your life? Do those make as big a difference as the big ones? Do you have that kind of conviction? That you're not going to compromise even the little things at home? Do we pray with our spouses? Do we ask our kids about their grades? Do we fight to have great grades, college students? I know the, the emphasis in the campus ministry is always go out and share your faith with a million people. But that does no good if we're all getting like a D average. Right? That, that's, and that, I'm not saying we are, but this is, but, but we've got to make sure that we're doing excellent when it comes to our life. Are you an excellent employee? That is a huge part of your life, your relationship with God. Do you show up on time? Are you exemplary? I mean, even to the, is your house clean? The little things. We're so ready to to jump up and do incredible things for God. But do we take care of our own homes? 
Do we take care of the altars that we've built in our own homes? Gideon was challenged. In Luke 16, Luke 16 and verse 10, Jesus said, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Right? Jesus was talking about possessions and money. But this principle is at work. Are we, can we be trusted with very little? How are we with the little things? We, we have to make sure that the little things in our life aren't slowing down God from doing the big things. Because it will. Right? Those things add up. They clog up our hearts. They clog up our lives. They clog up how much we're willing to give, how much we're willing to engage. We've got to make sure that, man, we are streamlining our hearts, our lives to be used by God. And Gideon went and he did it. He broke that thing down. And what was so encouraging is that it was his father's altar, but who defended him? His dad did. And when you see someone take a stand for conviction in your own home, it's powerful. You might not think people see, but they do. Right now, what I want to do is I want to actually take a minute. I want everyone, if you're, if you're taking notes on your phone, if you're taking notes on paper, if you're not taking notes, I want you to pull out a note. And I want to take a minute, and I want us all to write down the one thing that you know this morning that God wants you to deal with in your personal life or your home life. I want us to actually write it down. Type it into your phone. Type it on a piece of paper. What is the one thing this morning that you know God wants you to deal with in your home life, your personal life. So we have Gideon called by God, chosen by God. We have Gideon all in, willing to take on the big things and the small. And because Gideon was all in, my third point today, Gideon kept his faith. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6, verse 36. We're going to start there and read through the passage that I actually have on the screen. Judges chapter 6, in verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all on the dry, on all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a full bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test of the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Judges 7, verse 1. It says, Early in the morning, 
Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go and or this one shall go, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give you the Midian, give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. And during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. Obviously, he was afraid. The Midianites and Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and our whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed the trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beshetah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah near Tabith. That was a lot. But this is one of my favorite parts of Gideon's entire story. Because it is so incredibly absurd. Right? You think that there are certain times in the Old Testament when God would like give generals advice 
And it was actually like really incredible advice. He would say, hey, split the men, have them go around the back. You go, okay, tactically, that's really sound. That makes a lot of sense. But when God says to Gideon, like, hey, you, you actually have too many men. You have, what, 32,000 men? Yeah, that, we're not going to do that. You actually tell the guys who are scared to go, and then uh, I'm going to give you the weird water lapping guys. <laughs> yeah, you, you take those guys. I mean, I mean, I don't know about those guys, but you take them, and we'll, you know, we'll see what happens here. Right? Tactically, you go, this makes no, this is a, I was talking to Todd about this one time. I said, Todd, what is this? And he goes, it's just a really horrible plan. <laughs> Like, thank you, brother. It validates my heart. Like, this was just, by all accounts, a really horrible plan. There was no sound tactic to this whatsoever. God just said, hey, look, you're facing an overwhelming army. I'm going to stack the odds against you. Right? The Bible literally says that their sand, their their camels, and their men were like sand on the seashore. So 32,000 men. Gideon probably already felt really nervous with that many men that he didn't stand a chance. I mean, 32,000. That's a lot. That's, I'm trying to think. The Rose Bowl holds about three times that amount. So if you imagine the Rose Bowl like a third of the way full, that's how many men-ish he had. And God goes, nah, dude, we're going to take that out. We are going to remove some of your men. You, you get the lappers. Right, God's plan was to remind Gideon and to remind Israel, hey, this isn't about you. This is entirely about me and what I'm going to do. I called you. I asked you to be all in. And, and I'm going to call the shots on how this is going to go. And it's going to be awesome. You, you just got to trust me on this. All right, and you think that Gideon goes with it, right? And the title of this point is Gideon kept the faith. But it wasn't like Gideon was like overflowing with faith, right? I mean, we look, there are so many times when Gideon turns and he goes, oh God, and God just laboriously almost has this overwhelming patience with Gideon's heart, right? When Gideon is first called, he says, hey, let me bring you a sacrifice. And he goes, all right, I guess. Like, bring me a sacrifice. And then he does it. He burns the whole thing up on the rock. And then he's changing his father, you know, about to go to battle. And he goes, hey, hold up, though. I know you did the rock thing. That was cool. I know I broke down my father's altar, and that went really well. But can you do one thing for me? Can you do this little fleece thing with some water? Like, I just, I got to be really sure. Right? And so he does the fleece thing. Okay, don't be angry. Can you do it again? It's like, okay, sure, I'll do it again. Right, So then he gets there, he gets his men, and God goes, look, if you're still so discouraged, go down there and listen to what they're saying. I'll, I'll, I'll even give you that. Right? God was so patient with Gideon's like faithless heart in all of this to just kind of carry him along. Dude, it's okay. I'm going to reassure you. Look, here's the fleece. You want the fleece? All right, here's some fleece. You want some reassurance? Okay, go listen to this guy. The guy literally says, oh, your dream can mean no more than we're all going to die. That's why I laughed, because it's like, okay, this is ridiculous. Like, who would say that in your own camp? Yeah, dude, I I mean, wow. I I guess your dream just means we're all going to lose. So, cool, good night. Like, what? Like, right at every point, God was giving him everything we need. And And the point here is that we can get so hung up on feeling like, man, I'm just not equipped. 
I can't do this. Chaz, you, uh, you want me to take on the responsibility to deal with my sin, to make decisions in my studies, to do better at home, but I, I just, I don't know how. I haven't been trained as a leader. I haven't had a, a great time on, you know, marriage counseling, talking to my wife. I haven't, I've never studied the Bible before. I haven't this, I haven't that. We can talk all we want about how we're not equipped. But we forget that God doesn't equip or call the equipped. God equips the called. God, If God is calling you, that means God is going to equip you. God is going to carry you. Nowhere in the Bible does God call someone and go, Hey man, I really want you to do my will. Come over here. And then just let the dude get like killed horribly by, oh wow, you, yeah, you weren't ready for that. Oof. Man, we should have de-leagued that one. I mean, you clearly weren't ready for the pros. Like, I need to go get someone else. Like, no, God always can, even with a ridiculous, absurd plans that made no sense, God gave Gideon everything he needed every step of the way to make it. And not just to make it, but to have incredible victory and the same is true with us as god has incredible vision for the west side i know it and you know how i know it because you all have incredible vision you walk through this auditorium and you talk to anyone you talk to kenzie you talk to dink you talk to i mean you name it you talk to anyone in here nick mark dat And there's an incredible vision here for the West Side. We genuinely want to see people doing incredible things for God. We want to see people moving themselves out of the way so that God can work in them. We want to see God doing great miracles. And I think genuinely, unanimously, we all feel like without God, we can't do it. Congratulations. You all just made the requirement to be used powerfully by God. Congrats. Right? God wants us to do incredible things. God has called each and every one of us. If you're sitting in this auditorium today, God has chosen you. God wants you to be all in. Not just on the big things, but on the small things in your life. To be sold out. And God is going to give you the reassurance you need to have incredible victory. What is it? What is that one thing that burns on your heart that you want to see God do in your time here. Think about that. What is the one thing that burns on your heart that you want to see God do here? That is why you're here. That one thing is your vision. Let's go out there like Gideon. Be surrendered to God and see great victory. Amen? Amen. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.